You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. You might have seen the op-ed in the Washington Post last week by. Gail Dines. It got forwarded a lot. It got Facebooked a lot. Your anti-sex relatives or your pornphobic friends may have passed it along to you. Dines' op-ed was titled, Is Porn Immoral? That Doesn't Matter. It's a Public Health Crisis. Dines goes on through the piece to argue that porn destroys love. It threatens families. It causes erectile dysfunction. It makes men, or it makes more men, I guess I should say, into sexists and rapists. Basically, any bad thing that people do, from not washing their hands after using the bathroom to texting during movies, we can, says Dines, blame it on porn. Interestingly, in the next breath, in the very same piece where she says that porn does all these terrible, rotten, awful things, destroys family, destroys love, causes ED, Dines points out or mentions or argues, and maybe the only real fact in her whole piece, that rates of porn use are staggeringly high. Porn sites get more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined Dines writes, which is true. There's a lot of people out there consuming a whole lot of porn. And porn consumption rates have basically been through the roof since the internet came along. And the internet, as we all know, because we've all seen or listened to Avenue Q by now, the internet is for porn. So people basically should have stopped getting married by now and rates of sexual violence should be way, way up. But when you start looking at the facts, actual facts, not pornphobic, sexphobic bullshit, rates of sexual violence and sexual assault are down. Unplanned pregnancies, abortion rates at historic lows, and people have not stopped getting married, having relationships, forming families. And there's a body of evidence that Dines ignores that shows porn can be credited for those falling rates of sexual violence. Now, James Hamblin does a great job in The Atlantic of unpacking all of the bullshit in Dines' Washington Post op-ed. If you were panicked by Dines' piece after you read it or if you had sex-negative friends and family members forwarded to you, you might want to read it. James Hamblin's response. You might want to read it and share it widely. The piece is at theatlantic.com and it's titled Inside the Movement to Declare Pornography a Health Crisis. And guess what you'll find inside that movement? When you peel back the label, when you flip over the rock, you're going to find the Mormon church. Fight the New Drug is the biggest anti-porn group in the country, and they've got a website packed with images of hipsters being anti-porn hipsters. And again, all of this is funded by the Mormon church, which doesn't really like sex anyway and wanted to ban gay marriage and didn't have much success with that. So they've moved on to pornography. On their facts page, you will find, quote unquote, facts like porn hates families, porn leaves you lonely, porn addiction escalates, and my favorite, all caps, porn kills love. Let's take a quick look at that porn kills love thing. Or let's take a quick look at another piece written by another writer, the bullshit artist or the anti-bullshit artist Maria Konnikova in a piece for Aeon looked at the research and found the opposite. And I quote, it doesn't seem to be the case that people become desensitized to pornography in the sense that the more you watch, the more extreme your viewing content needs to become. So porn does not escalate or porn addiction does not escalate. Konnikova talked to researchers who've been actually measuring sexual arousal in people who are using porn or exposed to porn, and they found, and again I quote, that watching more pornography actually increased arousal to less explicit material. 
and increased the desire for sex with a partner. In other words, it made people who watch porn more, not less responsive to normal cues and more, not less desirous of real physical relationships. And in a subsequent study, when they took people who were in couples who were partnered and they had them watch porn together alone, viewing pornography increased couples desire to be with their significant other, whether they'd seen the films alone or together. So, yeah, so many lies, so little time here at the top of the podcast to unpack them all. Go read Hamblin's piece at The Atlantic. Go read Konnikova's piece at Aeon. There's just one thing I want to address. I can't completely exonerate porn, or we can't completely exonerate porn. We can't be Pollyanna about it, and I'm sure some of you are already where I'm going. Some of you are already thinking this. We get calls. We get calls from people who say that they can't stop watching porn. We get calls from people who are with people whose partners are ignoring them and getting up in the middle of the night to go jerk it to porn after rejecting their partner's sexual advances. We get calls and letters from people where porn seems to be the problem in their lives. Anything can be abused. If you walked into a room and you found someone hitting themselves in the head with a hammer and they said, hammers hurt heads, you would think to yourself, yeah, well, maybe don't hit yourself in the head with that hammer. If porn is a problem in your relationship, maybe stop hitting yourself in the head with it. Maybe watch a little less of it. Anything can be abused. And analogies can be abused. That was probably a bad analogy because hammers aren't for hitting yourself. So if you're using a hammer that way, you're misusing the hammer. Porn is for jacking it. So if you're using porn to jack it, you're using it for its intended purposes. And yeah, but you can jack it too much. A drink of water. We all need water. We all need to be hydrated. But did you know that you can drink water yourself to death, that you can die drinking water? It's called water poisoning, and it's a thing. But we don't say nobody should drink water. We don't say water kills love or people or anything else. We say don't drink too much fucking water. And most people don't. Most people don't drink too much fucking water. Water kills is rare. It is rare for water to kill. Water poisoning is rare because most people aren't going to drown themselves accidentally. But some people do. Just like some people drown themselves in porn. If the amount of porn you're consuming is bad for you, if it's making you feel bad, if it's harming your relationship, maybe don't drink so much fucking porn. But that posits still that porn is the problem or porn is the poison or porn is the disease that kills love. And actually porn in those instances is almost always, I think in every instance, porn is the symptom of something else of OCD, of dissatisfaction in a relationship that should probably be ended anyway, of compulsive behavior. And that person has latched on to porn. Not porn latched on to that person, but that person latched on to porn. Anything can be a problem in your life. If something is a problem in your life, some person, some substance, some media, Fox News is a problem in a lot of old people's lives. They should watch less Fox News because it's making them crazy. Porn can be a problem in your life. If you're watching so much porn that it's making you a little crazy, it's making you unhappy, it's making your partner unhappy, maybe cut back. But don't knock the porn out of other people's hands because your imaginary sky friends, Joseph Smith, have a problem with it. Or your sex negativity and your paranoia cause you to have a problem with it, Gal Dines. So, yeah, anyway, porn does not kill love. I predict, however, that irony is going to rescue those porn kills love t-shirts after reading hamlin's piece ever after reading konnikova's piece 
after slogging through Dines' piece, you know what I want more than anything in the world? Not to go sit in front of a computer and jack it to some porn. I want a Porn Kills Love t-shirt the same way stoners want dare t-shirts. I want to wear one for the irony. I want to wear one to flip off the liars and the paranoids. All right, coming up on today's show, we have a Q&A session from our live show, our recently taped live show in Madison, Wisconsin. And on the micro, we also have a conversation with the hosts of Feral Attraction, the furry community's very own sex and relationship podcast. All coming up. So first question, I'm just going to read them. Why do people not talk about butt crack hair? Men and women have hair down there. Why isn't this talked about? <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what there is to say. <laughs> I remember years ago, my, hus- my now husband, then boyfriend, and I, we had a conversation specifically in a roundabout way about butt crack hair. He asked me one day, uh, no, I'm not making this up, absolutely true story. He asked me one day if I would grow a goatee because he thought it might feel good when I rimmed him. And I looked at him and said, I have a goatee when I rim you. <laughs> I have never been quicker with a joke. That's the bet. That was, I should have like retired from being funny at that moment because it took him a second to realize what I was saying. And then, and then he married me anyway. Because he's not ashamed of his butt crack hair. (laughs) My wife and I enjoy threesomes, but she is uncomfortable with the planning part. Spontaneity is fun, but for health and safety, how do we reconcile this? Surprise her with planned three ways. (laughs) Where you do the advance work, and then she just comes into the room and is like, oh... Spontaneity is so fucking overrated. Planned sex is awesome sex. Uh, There was recently an article in the New York Times where mainstream sex and relationship therapists are now advising uh, married couples who are having problems around sex to emulate not just gay couples uh, around openness and conversation, which we're really good at, because once you've told your mother you put dicks in your mouth, telling your husband what you want to do to him is easy. But also to emulate kinky couples, because kinky couples plan sex in advance. They plan going to it, or swingers also. They plan going to a sex party. They talk about the people that they're going to meet there, what they want to do there. They have to make all these arrangements to make sort of a varsity-level kink thing happen. And what they've found studying these couples is they have a lot of sex in the run-up, plain vanilla maintenance sex in the run-up, but they're just so excited about what's going to happen a week from next Friday that they start fucking already. And then they have sex, a lot of sex after the big event because they're so aroused and excited about what happened that they keep talking and fucking about it. And so the idea that sex should be spontaneous and that's better and the best sex is spontaneous sex is just not true. Sex is not like it is in the movies or porn or on television. The best sex just doesn't break out. The best sex is plotted and planned out. And then within that structure... There are spontaneous moments, things happen, you improvise and roll with it, but better to plan out, especially something like a, a three-way where there's another human being that you're bringing in uh, and bending over whose interests and needs and sense of safety and comfort, all of that has to be taken into consideration 
And that has to be talked out. There's no way of avoiding it unless you have a partner who's willing to do all the talking out and planning for you, and then you can be like, for me? Is it safe to fuck in a pool? (laughs) I suppose there's a drowning risk. (laughs) You don't want to pump a lot of that crappy pool water into you. The CDC did a test of all these pools all over the country for whatever, and they found everything in the pool water. The same sort of test they've done on airplanes, where they test every surface, and they discover that literally every single surface in a commercial jet is coated with feces. I'd rather fuck in a pool than on a plane. But boy, if you're into shit, frequent fly. What's the best way to watch porn together when you are both mutually ashamed of the type of porn you like? I think there's a bigger underlying problem here than the we can't watch porn together problem. The bigger underlying problem is you're both ashamed of the porn you like to watch. And you shouldn't be ashamed of the porn you like to watch unless the porn you like to watch involves doing real harm to other human beings somewhere down the porn consumption chain. Then you should be ashamed of yourself for watching that kind of porn and creating that kind of demand for that kind of porn. But if you're being a conscientious porn consumer and watching ethically produced porn or being as careful as you can to watch ethically produced porn, you have nothing to be ashamed of. That said... You don't have to watch porn together. For a lot of people, porn is a private thing, and they don't necessarily want to be observed while they watch porn or feel observed or feel self-conscious. It's okay for porn to be something that the both of you know you both enjoy and both of you do sometimes watch porn, and for the both of you to give each other the time and space to do it alone. That doesn't have to be about you as a couple. You are still autonomous individuals who have coupled but you are not one organism that must always do everything together. So watch porn solo. You know, porn sometimes makes us self-conscious and it's not always about shame. Sometimes it's about vulnerability because you really, when you watch porn, it's like, it's a direct window into your every, into your sex, into what desire and arousal, what turns you on. And sometimes that can make people feel self-conscious and If you are watching porn where people are doing things that you two as a couple don't mutually enjoy and don't really do together, but the porn scratches your itch for that, it can make you feel really self-conscious. You don't want your partner to feel inadequate. If you're happy with everything, if you paid the price of admission, but every once in a while you want to watch this like crazy thing happen that you don't get to do and you're fine with that, but you don't want your partner to feel bad about that, watch it alone. Watch it alone. When in a relationship is it a good time to open up about fetishes? Parentheses, bondage, close parentheses, question mark. Early and often. My general rule of thumb when you don't meet through sort of a kink dating website, you didn't meet on FetLife, you didn't meet on Recon or Collar Me, is to prove, let them see, that vanilla and their things are things that you enjoy and are good at. And whatever your fetish is, it's something that you enjoy folded in with the rest of the things that you enjoy. And the best way to demonstrate that is for them to have fucked you a couple of dozen times before you say, hey, it's Christmas morning, here are your presents. Which is how you roll out fetishes. The problem with fetishes, particularly for you straight people who never had to look mom in the eye and say, put dicks in my mouth, the problem for you, for a lot of straight people, is that you approach fetishes like there's some tragedy. That this is a very sad thing that you are sharing 
where you're going to someone and you're saying, I know you care about me and this is really difficult, but I have leukemia. And if you roll your fetish out like this tragic disability, people are going to react to it like it's, you roll it out like cancer, people react like cancer. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I hope that's not infectious. How sad for you. No. You present your fetishes like they're presents on Christmas morning. Not, if we stay together, this is what you have to do. But if you stay together, this is what you get to do. And then you work out whether that's something that you two can do together, whether that's something you're willing to pay the price of admission of and give up if they're never going to be into it. I sometimes get in trouble for this, but I can't help it. Um, There's been a lot of terrible sex advice over the last six or 7,000 years. And some of the more recent, one recent-ish example of terrible sex advice, and it's good to see so many sex therapists and researchers moving away from this sex advice and actually embracing a concept I coined in my column called GGG, good giving and game. What we should be for our sex partners and have a right to request from our sex partners. Good in bed, develop those skills. Uh, Nobody can play a violin the first time they pick it up. And a violin is just cat gut on a stick. And yet people think they can play a human being the first time they pick it up. And a human being is a lot more complicated than a violin. So good, giving. Sometimes you give pleasure without expectation. In the context of a relationship, you are giving. You give pleasure sometimes without the expectation of an immediate return on that. That sometimes you're just doing for that person who also then sometimes just does for you. And that's okay. And game, which gets me in trouble because some people think that I am saying that to be a good partner, you have to do whatever your partner wants. And that is not true. Game for anything within reason. And we get to have our own reasons, our own boundaries, our own limits. The problem, uh, and the GGG concept has now been borne out by science. Amy Muse at Queen's University has done studies into uh, couples where, they're, where one person is doing for the other, where one person is going there and stepping outside their own sexual interests or, or limitations or boundaries to please their partner. And what they found is, of course, the person who's being indulged feels better about the relationship, more connected, happier, more satisfied in the relationship but so does the person doing the indulging. So the person doing the indulging in that context isn't curled up in the fetal position on the floor in the bathroom sobbing after. They're feeling good about the relationships, good about themselves, good about themselves as partners. And the, the mistake, the bad advice that was really given for decades and decades was never do anything in bed that you don't want to do. Never do anything in bed that doesn't turn you on. And the problem with that is, particularly in the context of sexually exclusive relationships, You bring two people together, and what if they only have about 20% overlap? You're going to have two people who are, one's 80% unsatisfied, one's 60% unsatisfied, unfulfilled in the context of the relationship. This is not a recipe for harmony in the relationship, a sexually exclusive relationship. What we should be saying is, maybe you can go there. Maybe that's something that you could think about doing or trying or baby steps. Maybe that's something you might enjoy Or maybe you would take enjoyment in their enjoyment if you went there. This doesn't mean he gets to shit in your mouth. That's a fetish too far. The internet was invented so the mouth shitters can find each other (laughs) and not have to pop the mouth shitting quest. Mouth shit is not a Christmas morning present. (laughs) 
That's leukemia still. <laughs> Unless you met on a scat-positive website and they're out there. But if it's something that... The example I always use, and I wrote about this in the column a long time ago, it, I got a letter from a woman, uh, a college-age woman, who was a waitress. And her boyfriend, who she really loved, would massage her feet after a shift. And this was wonderful. And then he told her that he had a foot fetish, and she broke up with him. And she wrote me saying, I just want to meet a normal guy. And I was like, ha, 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 good luck with that. <laughs> and I warned her that if you dump the honest foot fetishist, you will marry the dishonest necrophiliac in the end. <laughs> Karma and kink both start with K. And this was an instance of somebody just being incapable of saying, all right, this isn't my thing, but is this something that I can't do? Is this something that is triggering, traumatizing, so extremely unpleasant, or a libido killer that I just can't go there? And I really think, and I encourage her to rethink it, that letting someone massage your feet, even if it gives them a boner, is a place you should be able to go for someone you love. And that's all I'm saying about GGG and bringing these, you know, the, the Venn diagram of overlapping sexual interests, trying to push those circles a little bit closer together by indulging and stepping outside our comfort zones, not 10 miles outside our comfort zones so that we are traumatized, but baby steps outside our comfort zones to see what we really like. And I am here from my, you know, I'm 51 fucking years old. I am here from the future to tell you. that after doing basically this all my life, there are a lot more things that I enjoy now that I never thought I would that make me happy, that make him happy. So growing in this way has a benefit. Stepping outside your comfort zones has a benefit for you too if you are the one being asked to step outside your comfort zones. Wow, that was a long uh, answer to a very short question. And we have so many questions. My boyfriend of 18 months cannot ejaculate during sex with me only when watching porn. This has been the case with other partners he has had. He finally started therapy. Good. Uh, and according to his therapist, he has to work on relaxing and letting go. He has watched porn for many years, and I am his first LTR. I'm very supportive. We do enjoy sex. Do you think he needs some deprogramming, less porn? Yes, I do think he needs some deprogramming, less porn. I'm not anti-porn, obviously. <laughs> Come back tomorrow night for hump. We are not anti-porn. But I'm not anti-beer either. But sometimes we have a friend who really shouldn't have any beer. Right? They're just not good with beer. And beer's not good with them. And beer is fucking up their life. And fucking up their relationships. And fucking up their ability to be intimate or sexual. And you have to say to that person, no beer for you. Any substance, any media can be abused. Your boyfriend in porn, my father in Fox News. So, yeah, I think your boyfriend may be an example of somebody who should give up porn entirely and forever. And D and reprogram and get high a lot. And attempt this strategy that has worked for people with what I've called death grip syndrome, um, traumatic masturbatory syndrome, which is no more coming. What he probably has done, what many people in this circumstance will do, is they'll give sex without porn the college try, and then at the end, when they're frustrated and not able to come because no right hand, no porn, they 
go watch some porn. They revert to porn. Not anymore. If you don't come, you don't come. And then you just get to roll over and go to sleep. And eventually your dick, in desperation, (laughs) is going to carve new neural pathways all the way up your body and into your brain. Trust me on this. And your dick will find a way. Boyfriend, if you're in the room, because your dick is in charge. We tell young people that they will grow up one day and have sex. In reality, you will grow up one day and sex will have you. Sex is bigger, stronger, and more powerful than you are, and sex will make it work. Sex will find a way. The jizz in your balls will find a way out (laughs) in time. So long as you stop showing them the nearest exit, which is porn... Make it work for it. How do I help my 12-year-old recently out son learn to be a sexually safe GGG, but also independent and secure young man? He has three older sisters, and I have that down cold. Boys are confusing. <laughs> they are. I'm, have I mentioned that I'm 51 years old? I'm fucking 51 years old. And I came out when I was 18. And for gay men of my generation, it's freakish to have been out that young, to have come out in high school. I know, and I would tell people, you know, my peers when I came out, and they would be like, what? No, oh my God. It would freak them out to to meet somebody who came out in high school. That was not something that happened much in 1979 when I came out as bi at Metropolitan High School. And this freaks me out. Twelve-year-olds coming out freaks me out. There is a sad body of data that shows that coming out at this age uh, increases the likelihood for depression, suicidal ideation, other things. So you need to, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, take that into account, take that into mind. Out to the family, good. Supportive family, amazing advantage. Uh, That's really everything, makes all the difference. There's not a lot of studies with kids this young queer coming out, but they tend to get a better reception in middle school than they encounter when they enter high school. So already out kids going into high school can really be mauled and you need to be watchful not the not operating on the assumption that all queer kids are bullied not all queer kids are bullied not operating on the assumption that all queer kids are suicidal not all queer kids are suicidal but be watchful how do you help him learn to be sexually safe you give him a gay sex education age appropriate 12 he's seen the gay porn i betcha and it's time to have a conversation with him about porn and about gay sex, find some gay friends who can talk to him with your permission, but perhaps not in your presence, because that might make your son feel self-conscious. Not about grinder, <laughs> but about what he needs to know uh, based on what they feel they needed to know at his age. As for GGG, don't worry about it. Gay is the original G. And now I'm going to say something that might get me in trouble. Oh, my God. I was recently speaking to a group of young people in San Francisco, and this young uh, woman, this high school-age woman, uh, 16, 17 years old, um, was expressed to me, wanted my advice on how to talk to her mother about the fact that her parents were so much more overprotective of her than they were of her male siblings. That her male siblings, they were less worried about, less controlling of, less paranoid about, um, not always demanding to know where they were, who they were with, and just much more hyper about her and her safety, and it was making her feel shamed and self-conscious, and that's not cool, right? 
And I told her, I gave her some thoughts about what to say to mom and dad. And then I told her, I can understand why your parents would be more protective. And it has nothing to do necessarily with you and nothing to do inherently or essentially with your gender. It's because men are terrible. What your parents have to take into account with you as a young woman is sexual violence, is rape, is unplanned pregnancy, is the fact that sexually transmitted infections pass more easily from male to female during vaginal intercourse than they do from female to male. All of these risks fall disproportionately on you. And I don't know if your parents have articulated this very well or at all, or even if this is something they're consciously aware of, but when you go out into the world, there are these risks, and you go out into the world as a sexual being, there are these risks that they didn't have to factor in when they were worrying about your brother or your brothers going out into the world. So, yeah, I can understand as a parent why your parents would be a little more hyper with you about your safety because the world is in such a state, the world is set up in such a way that you are less safe. The same applies to your young gay son. He is going to go out in the world and date men. And men are testosterone-soaked dick monsters. And he should not be told that all gay men are good. We're giving our game. But not all gay men are good. And that gay men, he shouldn't be told gay men are his brothers. We don't tell 12, 13, 14-year-old straight girls that 45-year-old straight men are their brothers. Not because all 45-year-old straight men are skanking around wanting to hook up or exploit or take advantage of naive 15-year-old girls, but some are. And so we worry. And so we don't tell 15-year-old straight girls that a 40-year-old straight man who takes an interest in them should get the benefit of the doubt because he's her brother in straightness. Likewise, your son. Not, you shouldn't make him paranoid, but you have to acquaint him with the real risks, and you have to be uh, aware of them. And just the fact that your son can be out to you and that you are supportive is huge. The risks I ran as an out gay teenager when I finally came out as gay uh, were magnified because my parents didn't know I was gay. My parents didn't know I was out. My parents didn't know I had a boyfriend. My parents didn't know I was in gay bars. My parents didn't know anything because I couldn't tell them because I didn't know how they would react. And they had said all sorts of things that made me not trust them and not feel safe telling them. Consequently, I couldn't go to my mom and say, my boyfriend is telling me this. What do you think? The same way my sister could. My sister could go to my mom and say, my boyfriend is telling me that if I really loved him, we wouldn't use condoms. And then my mom would call my dad, who is a cop, and send him to her boyfriend. (laughs) True story. But I couldn't go to mom and say, my boyfriend is saying this. So I was less safe. Your son is going to be in a place where he can come to you and say, my boyfriend is saying this. Or come to uncles, come to family friends, identify people that he can confide in and turn to. And he will become, hopefully, independent and secure uh, as a young man and sexually safe. Um, And GGG and all of those awesome things. Ah, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So is monogamish gaining? I think so. Monogamish, uh, of course, is the word I coined and has become very popular, uh, also particularly among straight people. It was a word I coined to describe my relationship with my husband, Terry, because we took a big risk uh, more than a decade ago and came out as a non-monogamous gay male couple who were adoptive parents. And this was, 
And I love it when young queer kids accuse me of being heteronormative. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that was really heteronormative of us when we took that huge risk and we were honest about this thing that most people lie about all their lives. Anyway. (laughs) Where was I going with that? Oh, you know, Terry and I came out as not monogamous. And as a gay male couple... Uh, straight people and also other gay people presumed a degree of fucking around with other people that just wasn't true, that we had like a sling in the dining room over the table and people in the house all the time and tons of three-ways and it just like wasn't true. We were much more monogamous than not. We were mostly monogamous. We were monogamish. And it caught on. And do I think it's catching on? I do. I think that monogamy has been a complete and utter disaster for our species. Chris Ryan in Sex at Dawn says, points out that uh, adultery has been a death penalty offense in so many different religious codes over the eons. And yet at the same time, people run around saying monogamy is natural. Monogamy comes easy to us. We are a pair bonding monogamous species. And he points out that typically you don't have to threaten an animal with death for it to do that which comes naturally to it. (laughs) Swim, dolphin, fucking swim. Like we don't have to do that. And I'm not the enemy of monogamy, though I am sometimes painted that way. I'm not the enemy of monogamy. Most of what I say about monogamy, I think if people who valued monogamy, who wanted monogamous commitments, uh, would, would listen to and take into account and think about, it would make their monogamous commitments and their monogamous relationships sturdier and stronger. I'm not trying to pull people out of monogamous relationships. I'm not trying to make people who are monogamous or take monogamous couples and make them not monogamous. I want them to think about the fact that, and give each other credit for the fact that they are doing something difficult. We tell people that if you are in love with someone, you will not want to fuck other people. And that is not true. And we all know it's not true because we all want to fuck other people. Which is not to say we all intend to, want to is desire, lust, not want to, planning, gonna. But we all want to fuck other people. And so bearing that in mind, knowing we all want to fuck other people and knowing the stats and the data on infidelity, maybe we should encourage people who can't honor monogamous commitments not to make them. Therefore, fewer people in monogamous relationships who are violating those monogamous commitments, but also encourage people who've made monogamous commitments to be a little bit more forgiving and understanding. Monogamy is the only human activity, pursuit, whatever you want to call it, where a 100% flawless, perfect record is required to be regarded as any good at it. You can fall off your snowboard and be Sean White. You can be a James Beard award-winning restaurateur and burn a fucking omelet. You can be married to somebody for 50 years and it come out that you had one infidelity, that you cheated on them once 20 years ago. You fell on your snowboard one time and people were like, well, you sucked at monogamy. You failed at that. Don't know how you sleep at night with how bad you were at that monogamy thing you're doing for 50 fucking years. That attitude, that one slip-up is, and it's over, destroys monogamous relationships, ends them. We tell people you must get a divorce if your partner cheats on them. And I think we need to take the cheating into consideration. We need to judge it on a case-by-case basis. Fucked your sister on your wedding night, probably can't get past it. (laughs) That's a betrayal of a degree probably unforgivable. Serial adultery... 
Many, many, many lies, 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 money wasted on assignations with others, uh, constant betrayals. Yeah, maybe, maybe you should have pulled the cord a long time ago. But you're together 25 years, 30 years, and he got a hand job on a business trip from somebody he met in the lobby bar, or she fucked her personal trainer one time after 25 years. Really, you're going to get divorced over that? That to me seems insane. And when I say this, you know, and sometimes I encourage people to cheat, people say, oh, you put too much importance on sex. You place too much emphasis on sex. And I think that's exactly backwards. My attitude there is to place less emphasis on sex. Because what the culture tells you, what your parents and friends tell you, is that you have to take out the scales, and on one side you put the home you've built together, the children you're raising together, the property that you have accrued together, the two families that you have knit together, the history that you have together, the shared experiences that you've had together, the rapport and the comfort that you have together and that you take in each other. You put all that on one side of the scales and you put a hand job on the other and it's supposed to go like that. That is placing too much emphasis on sex. Because what I'm saying is it should go like this, right? That you can weigh it, you can say that was a shitty thing to do, but come on. And so to tell people you should be able to forgive that, that hand job or that fucking the personal trainer, because really, who can resist a personal trainer? <laughs> Basically, anybody who hires a personal trainer kind of wants to fuck them sometime. <laughs> and personal trainers are kind of whores. <laughs> they can be had. Anyway, I have to keep going. My boyfriend has a question he wants to ask you, but he won't tell me what it is. Should I be worried? Yeah. <laughs> Vanilla sex is great, no problem. How do I get my kinky friends to shut up about their kinky sex? Because <laughs> I don't give a fuck. I think you just tell them to shut up about their kinky sex. Yeah, kinky people can be really boring. Um, <laughs> so can people in love. So can vanilla people. So it might not be that the kink is the problem, but these people are the problem. <laughs> and if it wasn't kink they were boring you with, it would be something else. What is the success rate for open marriages? Is it worth it? I really don't think closed marriages are in a position to throw stones. <laughs> with about half of all uh, presumably closed monogamous marriages ending in divorce, uh, I don't think there is a really good stat on open marriages. Oh, but there is one that just came out, out of the Netherlands. Yesterday, 15th anniversary of legal same-sex marriage, marriage equality coming to the Netherlands. First country on earth with legal same-sex marriage. And they just did a study of all these couples, gay, straight, uh, and lesbian, or presumably gay, not necessarily gay, the guys could be bi. But male couples, female couples, and straight couples, and they looked at all these couples, <clears throat> and you know what they found? Guess who has the highest divorce rate? Lesbian couples. <laughs> and guess who has second place? Straight people. Least likely to divorce, gay male couples. Now, most likely to be monogamous, lesbian couples. Less likely, straight couples. Least likely, gay couples. Correlation is not causation. But I think there's something there. 
You always say round the point six seven up to one. You also emphasize matching libidos. I am a female with a high, high libido. The highs are underlined. Dating the best man I have ever dated. He is a medium libido. Sex every four days. Good sex. Everything else is great. Can I round him up to one? I'm in my 30s and have never dated my libido equal. Yeah, you might want to do that. As a 29-year-old bisexual woman, I often have women question if I am actually bi because I am very femme-looking. Do I have to change my appearance to attract women who are also into women because I look straight? No, you just need to move away from Madison. (laughs) You'd be getting so much pussy in Seattle. Like the dumpster behind the vet's office. That is my best dead cat joke. I'm glad you appreciated it. How do you ask your weed dealer if he's okay with me sucking his cock? I think you mean how do I ask my weed dealer if he's okay with you sucking his cock? Because what you're asking is if my weed dealer is okay with it. How do you ask your weed dealer if he's okay with it? But my weed dealer is technically the state of Washington. And I don't think you want to blow all of us. How do I ask my weed dealer if he's okay with me sucking his cock? Is that something I can slash should ask? Can, should. Obviously, you can ask that. You can ask anything. (laughs) So the real operative word here, the hinge, is should ask. And only you know the answer to that question. If this queers forever your relationship with your weed dealer, if it goes south, if he's uncomfortable selling you weed, knowing that you would also like to suck his cock, well, then perhaps you shouldn't ask because the relationship might end. But nothing ventured, nothing gained, no risk, no dick in your mouth. There are other weed... There's other dick, though. Can we have a moment of silence here, please, for James Franco and Pineapple Express? If that guy was my weed dealer, I would be offering to suck his dick every day. I would smoke so much pot just so I could go get some more weed. Was he sexier than anything on earth in that movie? In his Peruvian, he looked so Madison in his Peruvian drawstring pants. Oh, my God. I've been casually seeing this guy for the past four months who I really like but he has a very low libido because he's on antidepressants. Is there anything that could be done to raise his libido? How can I broach the subject in a sensitive manner? I think anybody who would put the question to me this way would be incapable of broaching the subject in an insensitive manner. So go for it and use your words and speak with him just very straightforwardly about it. If you want to do a little bit of your due diligence before you have the conversation, you can look into the med he's taking And there is a lot online because this is a real problem. Not that you should believe everything you read online, but there's a lot of research and a lot of weighing of different medications against each other. And not all medications work for all people. They're not interchangeable. But it might be possible that he could change his meds, try a lower dose. A lot of people were put on high-ish doses and then just kept getting the high dose without ever getting a check on whether you needed to stay on that high dose. But there might be a solution that you could come to him with that's not going to necessarily magically raise his libido, but if indeed it is the antidepressant that's doing it, could help, and good luck, and I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, as tragedies go, 
it's not that high. Better to have a medicated, less fuck bunny partner than somebody who's debilitated by depression and incapable of being a good partner to you or a good person for himself. Hi, Dan, gay married male. We don't do anal play. What's the best way to keep things interesting over the long haul? Believe it or not, you can only have so many blowjobs before you want some variety. <laughs> There's something I noticed when I, in a professional capacity, attended uh, fetish events, and I would go to dungeon parties, I've been to big play parties, and the crazy thing was you would watch two people do all this insane, or three people, do all this insane shit to each other, and sounding, and e-stim, and flogging, and crazy bondage, and then everything often, uh, particularly with the straight couples, terminated in missionary position intercourse on the floor or on the bed. And if you just took them out of the dungeon and put them uh, in a La Quinta Inn, <laughs> you just magically teleported them, it would look like they had nothing but vanilla sex all day long. So in the end, they were just having probably the same sex they were having when they first met, if they weren't necessarily kinky when they first met. Um, they just took that sex, they took their PIV, missionary position, boring AF sex, and they put it someplace crazy. They put it in a dungeon and they did lots of other stuff before they did that. And so that felt much funner and more exciting and whatever else because they put it on Mars. So take the blowjobs you guys have been giving each other and put them somewhere crazy and it should be more fun and uh, have sex with other people. <laughs> together, together have sex with other people. I've recently begun processing the fact that I was raped abroad and it's eliminated my libido. How do I talk to the guy I've been recently seeing about this? This is like having HIV, like having HPV, like having uh, a history of abuse, like whatever else that can be difficult to talk about that the person who is doing this disclosing can feel self-conscious about, this is a superpower. This is a sorting hat. This is Harry Potter shit. You tell him this one thing about you, and it is only one thing about you. Uh, and his response tells you everything about him, everything you need to know about him. If you tell him this, and he reacts selfishly, inconsiderately, cluelessly, he has told you he is not someone you should be dating, particularly not right now. So you've told him this... And you shouldn't be, shouldn't be at all self-conscious. You should roll it out. Don't want to let it go on too long because, God forbid, if he is the sensitive, nice person that you hope he is, and you wait to tell him and he makes a move that is triggering for you all unawares because he is not clued in, that would be a terrible development. If he is the sensitive good guy that we all hope that he is, uh, that could traumatize him. Traumatizing someone accidentally can itself be kind of fucking traumatizing. So bring him in soon, and bring him in unselfconsciously. And if you have to show him out right after you tell him, fucking do it. <laughs> Sounding. Why? <laughs> oh, we can play the why game, because... Desire is so subjective, and what's hot or what's sexy is just so personal and subjective. And we lose sight of that because there's generally some big, big things that almost everybody likes, but not everybody, like the gay couple that's only having oral sex. They don't do anal. So not all gay guys are buttfuckers. 
Um, in real numbers, there are more straight buttfuckers than gay buttfuckers when you look at the percentages. So, if buttfucking disqualifies you, never mind. Um, it's just most of the Santorum that gets stirred up in San... In, <laughs> most of the Santorum stirred up in asses in Madison, Wisconsin on any given weekend is straight. But sounding why... So people do this thing, like, you know, the big things we all agree on, like, oh, yeah, ugh. But there are people who don't like those things and don't want to do those things. And they're like, why? Anal sex, why? Um, awesome. But anyway, it's subjective. And, you know, I could stand up here and go, cunnilingus, Why? I don't see it. Um, but I'm mature enough to appreciate that that's something that some folks appreciate, and I appreciate their appreciation of it, and I would appreciate that they not make me do it too. And you can apply the same standard to shoving metal rods up your urethra, which is what sounding is. But why? Because it feels good for some people. Because the urethra is surrounded uh, by a lot of... in women, sometimes clitoral tissue, and actually surrounded by it. Uh, and in men, the prostate is wrapped around it. So for some people, sounding, shoving that urethra up, or shoving that metal rod up your urethra is a new and novel way to stimulate the prostate or the majority of the clitoris, which is all inside. And then there's the psychological aspect, particularly when uh, men are sounded or pe people with penises are sounded, because you're fucking the fucker. You're penetrating the penetration tool. And for some people, that transgression is so arousing all by itself. So that's why, and it's really not too hard to figure out why that would be sexy for some people. If I could figure out why cunnilingus might be sexy to some people when I was 17, which I did, then you can wrap your head around sounding as an adult who could get to this show. <laughs> I've been married for 2.5 years and recently asked my husband for an open marriage to explore things he has said he definitely isn't into. He isn't a great communicator, so it's hard to discuss, but he gives me one-word answers. Like, is this okay? Yeah. What are ways to get him to open up here, or maybe he really is okay? You can take yeah for an answer. Can I fuck other people? Yeah. That is a non-problem problem. What is the best lubricant to use while pegging? You want to say misogynist's tears. <laughs> but they don't bottle it, and I don't think it's viscous enough. Your lubricant. Use your lubricant. Your preferred brand of lubricant. Um, that can be subjective. What? Silk. Silk? We're spunk guys at our house. Spunk's a terrific lubricant. I think it's the best one we've ever found. But you can have your silk and I can have my spunk because diversity. <laughs> you often tell people to use your words. I have tried and I am definitely bad at it. I seem to inspire defensiveness. How do I get better? Do you know of any books that could help? Yeah, I don't know. You might want to get a therapist. No, I'm, I'm not being, I'm being completely, like, kind and serious. Like, that's not a problem I can unpack with you in two sentences written on a piece of paper. Um, if you have a communication disconnect, if there's some way you think you're trying to bring yourself across or put yourself across, and you're achieving the opposite effect consistently, that's something to hash out with a, perhaps a cognitive behavioral therapist over half a dozen sessions. And there's nothing wrong with that.
Is the health of a sex life of a couple a roughly reliable indicator of the health of the couple's relationship? Oh, come on, no. Right? We've all been in shitty relationships with people we just couldn't stop fucking. (laughs) Sometimes that couldn't stop fucking is the reason the shitty relationship went on a lot longer than it should have. We've all had those, the sex is amazing, but you, you are terrible. R's that became LTRs and needed to be STRs, short-term relationships, because the sex was great. So, of course, the sex life of a couple does not uh, indicate. And sometimes there are couples out there, I really want to start a movement again to validate, honor, and talk about the companionate marriage. Because there are a lot of great couples out there who feel like they're doing... who who think that there's something inadequate about their relationship or their connection or their marriage, who feel like they're doing love wrong because sex isn't a huge part of their relationship or a part of their relationship at all, which I hear about a lot from people in sexless relationships, but only when they're in a sexless relationship that they want out of or they're in a sexless relationship that makes them miserable because they want to have sex and their partner doesn't want to have sex with them or with anybody sometimes, often the former. And there's nothing wrong with a sexless companion marriage if both people are content and happy. And so saying sex is the stand-in for quality uh, kind of fucks with those people's heads because then those people write me and think that they're supposed to be miserable. And that's a powerful mental nightmare tool. I don't know what to call it. The expectation, the, the, the awareness that people think you're supposed to be miserable because this has happened. Then you will go out there and you will perform misery And then you will feel misery, that you will create that misery that did not need to be created. Some people have this problem with feeling like they're supposed to feel miserable for the benefit of others when they are being, they've been cheated on or they have a sexual trauma in their past that they have overcome or they weren't necessarily too derailed by it in the first place. And other people will look to them. Some survivors of sexual abuse, when you talk to them, one of the things they have to struggle with, which is crazy, is that some people who have not experienced sexual abuse treat them like there's something wrong with them, that they're now constantly devastated 24 hours a day. That if they're functioning, that there's something wrong with them because they're not being the right kind of survivor? Because we have to play up how... Anyway, I'm too stoned to talk about this right now. (laughs) Short answer? uh, uh, No. No, it's not. Hi, Dan, and the tech savvy at risk youth. So I have a friend who just slept with this guy for the first time, and she said that it was really, she kind of doesn't know how she feels about it, but she said it was a little awkward and like he was really quiet. Like she didn't even know that he came. He was so quiet. But anyway, they just saw each other for the first time afterwards the other night, and she said that he told her, that she should have warned him about her vagina being like a weird angle. Um, And she knows already that her vagina, I guess, is a weird angle. But I guess he said something to the effect of like, so she should have warned him ahead of time. And I just thought that was really weird. Like everybody's body is different. And I just thought I told her that she shouldn't, 
feel weird about telling people about that beforehand because everybody's body is different and she should feel, feel comfortable with just maybe saying something in the moment if there's like a position that they can't try because of it, but she shouldn't have to warn them ahead of time because it made her feel kind of self-conscious about it after he said that she should have warned him. Um, And he also told her that he could feel her IUD and that he should have warned her about that too ahead of time. And um, I just thought that was really weird too, because if he didn't bother to even ask her about birth control before they had sex, then what right does he have to complain about her IUD? Anyway, I was just wondering what you guys thought about that. If it was like kind of a dick move on his part to say that stuff. And I thought maybe he was just being defensive because she said she did tell him that she thought he was really quiet um, before he said any of that to her. So I thought maybe he was just being defensive and like retaliating because uh, she hurt his fifis by saying he was really quiet. Anyway, just like to hear your thoughts. Different angles work for different people during penetrative sex. Generally, broadly, uh, even if somebody's angle is more typical than someone else's angle, there's going to be an angle of penetration, an angle of grind, particularly with penis and vagina intercourse, that helps some women get off uh, more easily. And so angle matters. But unless the particular angle of her vagina, unless she has some bizarre corkscrew or right turn vaginal canal and she's going to injure the dude as he enters her the first time adjusting for and figuring out the angle that works is a part of that big discovery new sex partner thing that we all enjoy so much about jumping into bed with somebody we've never met before for the first time so i don't think your friend with the bizarre vaginal angle is necessarily required to disclose that in advance As for the IUD, IUDs don't poke people in the penis if they're properly inserted and the strings are properly tucked away. Uh, An IUD can begin to be expelled and then that's a problem and the first person who might notice that problem is the guy with the penis up the vaginal canal being poked by a partially expelled IUD. That happens very rarely. So this is probably not an issue. What he's probably poking was her cervix if he had a very long dick and – Somehow, despite the crazy corkscrew angle or funhouse ride nature of her vaginal canal, he managed to reach the top of it and poke her cervix with his dick, the far likelier obstacle he encountered with the head of his penis. What do you do with these two? Well, clearly these two shouldn't fucking fuck ever again. If after that first time in bed, even if, you know, that first time there's probably going to be awkwardness, there's probably going to be some things you need to talk about or iron out as you get to know each other better. But if after your first time, the awkwardness you're ironing out with mutual recrimination, that's not a sign that you two should ever be naked together again. She felt he was too quiet. He retaliated with your angle is screwy. Oh, and you poked me like, oh, okay, you two separate corners. She shouldn't have criticized the noise he made or didn't make when he came. And perhaps going forward, she should accept that some men grunt and groan and scream when they come and some men are silent and they concentrate when they come. And that's just part of the difference that we should celebrate, like different angles of vaginal canals. But if you're the kind of person who needs to hear a lot of screaming and yelling when you come, if you need dirty talk or you appreciate the feedback of grunting and groaning, you can say that. 
Some people need that permission to be drawn out. Some people, the first times that they started having sex, it was in dorm rooms or they had roommates or they had parents down the hall and they kept silent. They learned to come quietly because they were afraid of being discovered. They were afraid of broadcasting to the sleeping roommate or the clueless parents that they were fucking. And it can take some time to unlearn that and some encouragement, not faulting, but encouraging. Like, hey, next time we fuck around or next time you are fucking around, I love to hear about it. I love to know when somebody's coming. Scream and shout. That could be all it takes. All right. We're going to take a quick break from your calls for Second Opinion, our regular segment where we invite on other folks in the sex and relationship advice and podcasting racket to talk about the sex and relationship advice biz and how they got into it. And we throw a couple of your questions at them on our show to see how they do. Joining us today, Vero and Matrico, co-hosts of the Furry Relationship Advice Podcast, Feral Attraction. Joining us today for Second Opinion are Vero and Matrico, co-hosts of the Furry Relationship Advice Podcast, Feral Attraction. Hey, you guys. Thanks for jumping on the phone. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So how long have you been doing a, a sex advice podcast for furries? Well, uh, we kind of jumped into the racket uh, about, I don't know, two and a half months ago around the new year. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, not that the market isn't fairly saturated amongst you uh, non-furry <laughs> folk. You know, not that we're not willing to take questions from furries. I have in the past, but you, yeah, they're all yours you, now. Honestly, yeah, you've been very, uh, you've been very even-handed to the furry community, which I <laughs> very much appreciate. Uh, but, you know, the reason that I pretend to be an anthropomorphic border colleague on the Internet, you know, it does escape, you know, a lot of people why we'd want to do that kind of thing. But I think it's important that, you know, the furries have a relationship and sex advice column as well, because, you know, for one, not every furry wants to reach out to someone who isn't in the community because it's kind of a, in a way, a bit of an incestuous community, the way people tend to date and have a relationship tend to be very self-contained. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the other reason is, you know, furry fandom is kind of uniquely enriched with young people who are attempting a lot of non-traditional relationship styles. And, you know, a lot of them are doing it wrong because they're, it's their first relationships. And so we wanted to make sure that there was a voice in the furry community that was... Did you say a lot of them are doing advice. it wrong? Uh, yeah, I did. And I know I'm going to take some flack for that. You are, because it's been my experience that young people in any sort of alternative uh, fetish or kink or identity or lifestyle scene, the last thing they want to hear from older people is, you're doing it wrong. Oh, absolutely. We would never tell that to any individual person, but we can get away with it if we phrase it as a collective, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been at it for two and a half months. Welcome to the sex and relationship advice racket. Always happy to have more folks involved. Um, so you must be getting questions already. What are your we questions? Certainly are, like? yes. Um, our questions tend to focus a lot on how to express the fact that you're polyamorous to a family member or even within the fandom, how to kind of express the fact that you're a furry, maybe to, you know, a boyfriend or girlfriend that's not a furry, mm-hmm. things of that nature. When do people typically realize they're furries? How does that process work? You say come out to somebody you're already in a relationship with. Did people know they were furries before they're in the relationship or did they come across furry porn or furry fandom and then it clicked and they're like, ah, this is my thing. And yet here's my non-furry partner and I have to go tell them. How does that work? So I don't want to get in trouble for calling furry a kink because it's not, and that's again another live wire I don't want to touch. But okay. I take it, is back. A, it is in a, in a lot of ways uh, like a kink in the sense that a lot of people just kind of discover they're kinky and some and have always been kinky, mm-hmm. and some people kind of come into it because they got exposed to someone who was really kinky. And so there's, I think, a, a lot of both. 
Um, you know, the way I came into the fandom was by dating someone who was furry and kind of discovering what the community was like. And I just fell in love with the community and kind of developed my interest in anthropomorphic art secondarily to that. Uh-huh. Some people come into it because they had a funny feeling when they were little looking at, you know, furry cartoons on Saturday morning and, you know, started searching for things and came across the fandom that way. So there's definitely a lot, a lot of both of those. So it's been my experience in the furries that I've talked to or heard from at the column in the podcast over the years that furry and uh, polyamory seems to correlate pretty strongly. I don't think I've ever gotten a question from a monogamous furry. Are they out there? Have you heard from them? <laughs> they absolutely are out there. Yes. I'm, I'm actually one of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm talking to a unicorn. Perhaps. I know. I, I no, don't want to misanthropize you, but I don't want to stop misanthropizing myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the reason our podcast exists is because there are a lot of mm-hmm. uh, non monogamy a, a lot of people in kind of pack mentality and stuff like that. But there certainly are monogamous phrases as well. We want to cater to everybody because everyone's got their own, you know, shit to deal with. Everyone's got issues, and you know, the fandom has. Every, it's kind of a microcosm. It's got a lot of everybody. I think it's a bit enriched for non-monogamy, but I don't think that's the, the only thing that, that exists for sure. So for the fur challenge, or people who aren't familiar with the furry community, can you rattle off some of the lingo for us? Because there's a language, there's a lingo, there's a lexicon, uh, almost a code that's really fascinating and really creative. And I'd love to share for you guys to share some of that if you're willing to with the listeners. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, you know, like furries tend to refer to the partners as mates. Some people get a little put off by that. There's actually a bit of a uh, a self-loathing section of the furry fandom that gets upset when you actually use some of this lingo. So there's actually, it's kind of start, like the, the fandom starting to eat its own tail a little bit on that. Not, you know, tail, mm-hmm. ha, furry pun. I but, got uh, it. I got it. Yeah, right yeah, yeah. Excellent. So, you know, mate is one. Uh, we tend to say yes instead of fuck, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another one. I mean, it's, it's yes itself came from the sound that foxes make when they fox. So that's kind oh, of a weird. that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Masturbation is pawing. Yeah. There's a lot of, <laughs> and I know, it's the best. There's like interchanging between like hands and paws. So like if you're going to jerk off, you're pawing off, that sort of thing. So I and it's like head, like if you're giving like a head job, it's giving a muscle job. That's sort of, it's, it's a lot of interchangeability between, like the human anatomy and like animal anatomy in a sense. Yeah. And uh, if you're, uh, you know, willing to be fucked, that's called raising your tail. <laughs> I, I don't want to, yeah. you know, not equating uh, furry with gay, but just as there's a lot of different ways to be gay, uh, there's a lot of w- different <laughs> ways to be a furry. Isn't that right? Absolutely. There's, I mean, there's a lot in the furry fandom. There's a lot of people that are what would be considered lifestylers where they almost consider themselves to be their animal persona or, you know, the, the character that they've created. And they go through life with that mentality, whereas some people view it more as a means of income, especially for artists. So there's really no wrong way to be a furry. Yeah. Some people are just in it for the art and aren't sexual at all. Mm-hmm. They don't even, you know, look at any furry porn some people are really, you know, use it as a way of kind of having their sexual awakening, their sexual liberation. Mm-hmm. And they're mm-hmm. predominantly sexually oriented towards furries, fursuits, all that kind of stuff. So there's a complete gamut and it's really hard. And what's unfortunate is a lot of times one segment of the furry community will try to pretend like the other side doesn't exist. And we, so we really try to avoid that because some people say, oh, furry, it's all about sex. Some people say furry is not about sex at all. And neither of those is obviously correct. So, you know, we have to take a bit of a middle ground there. Mm-hmm. Everything's about sex, in my opinion. We like to, when we have people on the show for Second Opinion, toss a couple of our callers' questions at you guys to see how you do. We didn't have any furry callers on deck, so you're going to have to wade into the world of non-furry sex and advice problems. Are you willing? 
We'll do our best, Dan. Absolutely. Hey, I'm a mid-20s girl in the West Coast. So I just have a question about me and my boyfriend. So we've been dating for three years. We now live together and it's awesome. We work really well. We have a lot of fun together. And I think we've gotten really good at communicating. So one of our recent conversations was about potentially getting married. I've dated around enough that I feel fairly confident in our relationship and what works. And I think it's really unique and I'm feeling good about it. He hasn't dated around a lot. I'm his first serious long-term girlfriend. So I think he just doesn't have that comparison point or hasn't really just gotten it out of the system. So he's just not ready to fully commit. Just how do we approach that? We've been talking about maybe opening up the relationship, but I'm very much a monogamous person. And that's just something I really don't want. Um, He says he doesn't want it, but I don't know. I feel he's just kind of curious and feeling a little unsettled. So is there something else we could try? Is there a way to help us talk this through? Okay. Well, in this sort of case, I mean, just off the bat, it sounds like this discussion of marriage that they're having might not be necessarily warranted. It sounds like they're not necessarily ready to settle down yet. I mean, when when I listen to this this call, it's I think if they settle down, if they get married now, then there's going to be a lot of doubts and a lot of uncertainty in both of their minds. And that's just going to prey on their insecurities. Yeah, I see a lot of doubt uh, and kind of not re- and, and readiness to really be having this conversation coming from both parties. You know, I think on, on her side, you know, she's feeling more experienced. She feels like, you know, she's not really uh, able to op- open up to non-monogamy to kind of indulge his, you know, wanting to explore a bit more. But uh, on the other hand, you know, he's not really ready to borrow your lingo around her up to being one, you know, one and go there with, with her. And mm-hmm. so I think the marriage conversation is just really premature. Uh, you, know what, frankly. you know what's forcing the marriage conversation? The living together fact on the ground. They're already, do, you know, behaving as if they're making a serious commitment to each other. They're living together and get and settling down together. And then, you know, if you're not ready for marriage after three years and after living together and all that time, I'm sure she feels like shit or get off my face. (laughs) For sure. Maybe the middle ground here isn't break up or be non-monogamous, but back up and get your Mm -hmm. own spaces and don't live together and keep dating and then see. Yeah, that's certainly an option. And the other thing is, you know, maybe the issue is just this sense that he hasn't had a chance to explore. If we can kind of attack and unpack some of the underlying issues, that can also be super helpful. So, you know, one thing is just having a conversation, talking about, you know, if openness isn't really on the table, you know, are you at least willing to be GGG? You know, where, what are you, where are you willing to go? You know, she could have a conversation where she's asking him, you know, I wonder what it would be like for you to date someone else. You know, what experiences do you think you might have? What do you feel like you've missed out on? Could we go there together? Could we go there in fantasy? You know, do I need to pretend to be a French maid? You know, what do I need? What, what is it that you feel like you missed out on? What's that, what's that experience from your bucket list that you didn't get to have? Can I give that to you? And that might also kind of be a way of, of uh, allaying his fears, making him more willing to settle down. Or if not a French maid, perhaps a cute fox. <laughs> hey, that's more our preference. Sure. Go for that. <laughs> All right. Good answer. Let's do the next call. Hey, Dan. My boyfriend and I both learned this week that we're going to be losing our jobs. And my boyfriend halfway jokingly suggested that we try camming as an employment alternative. 
So I was wondering what your take on this was. Is it safe? Does it affect the relationship? Let me know. So what do you think? Should they start camming to pay the bills? Well, I think the question of safety is an interesting one. You know, it might be safe unless, you know, they're laid off teachers or nurses or doctors or lawyers or something like that. Uh, personally, I'm, you know, fairly out about being a furry, which is a fairly, you know, maligned thing to be. But I'm also a freelancer, so I don't really care. I've got a little bit of security that I've got multiple clients and one of them happens to come across something they don't like. I've got others to back back up my income stream. So I'm not super concerned about that, being out about that sort of thing. But the other things that have a lot of shame associated with them, like camming, you know, if you are in one of the helping professions, you've got to think very carefully. If you're planning to ever jump back into that pool, right. that's going to be really difficult for you if you are, you know, have your face out there. And, you know, to borrow some terms from like the uh, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy sort of school of thinking, they both need to gain this out and do some decatastrophizing de- de- a bit. So game out what's going to happen. You know, what are the worst case scenarios here? What if mom and dad, you know, discovered, you know, a video of you, you know, doing it on camera, you know, what's going to happen if, you know, in a future employer has this information, you know, is that going to affect us? Are we ever going to want to jump back into whatever job we had prior? So or if that someone maliciously records one of your sessions and then disseminates it, which often happens. There's actually a um, YouTuber that does like sex advice. His name is uh, Callum McSwiggan. And he did an interview with uh, Pink News, uh, Dog UK about that. And he was talking about how previous to his, you know, YouTube uh, profession, he utilized online webcam services in order to, you know, pay the bills. And uh, he, he mentioned something where a lot of people would illicitly record and then upload to other porn streaming sites. Mm-hmm. And, like his advice was, if you're going to do porn, then you you have to be sure that you're completely 100% comfortable with everybody finding out about it. And if you have that kind of a doubt in the back of your mind where, oh, my God, what if my parents find out? Oh, my God, what if, you know, a future employer finds this? Then you shouldn't get into it because it, it's it's in terms of safety, it's not safe from, you know, exposure. It's not safe from exposure because it is exposure. Exactly. But in terms of safety, you know, when people talk about different forms of sex work, it may be the safest Mm -hmm. form of sex work because the clients aren't in the room with you. If you're doing it with your boyfriend, there's no STI Mm -hmm. risks necessarily that you need to be concerned about if you've both tested and you're monogamous or monogamish. Safety-wise on those metrics, it's pretty fucking safe. But safety-wise on will anybody ever find out, will these pictures be circulating online or the videos circulate online, not safe. And you shouldn't go into it expecting that kind of privacy or that kind of safety because it's not there to be found. For sure. Now, there's also the question about whether it affects the relationship. And I think that's also an important one to touch on. Um, You know, again, with the decatastrophizing, you know, you have to think about things like what if he's more popular than I am? What kind of feelings of envy and jealousy is this going to bring out in our relationship? It could be really good for the relationship going on a shared adventure. If you're both having a bit of an exhibitionist streak, doing this together could be really hot, really fun. But if, you know, one of you is more shy, if one of you feels like the other one is talking the limelight, anything like that, that could actually be really destabilizing for the relationship. So there's also the safety to factor in from the perspective of the safety of the relationship. I think that's also really important to gain that out with your partner beforehand, have some conversations about, you know, what's, who's going to be the more popular one. You know, if anything like that happens, are are we going to feel really negatively about that? There's also um, a lot of online webcam voyeurs will say have a lot of fetishes that they want to, you know, partake in. And a lot of them will expect for you, if they're paying you to kind of indulge their fetish. So you almost have to be, 
very, very much so GGG in order to kind of get the audience on your side in order to get money. So there is that, you know, that needs to be considered. What are fetishes that you're not willing to do? Where are the boundaries? Because if you don't have those sets, you know, in the moment where, oh my God, I have to pay rent, you know, mm. is, it, is it going to be a dignity paycheck or are you doing it to pay the lights? You right. know? That, that's an aspect of camming that a lot of people who aren't familiar with camming may not uh, know about, that there is this mm-hmm. interactive uh, element to camming where the people who are watching you can also email you or text with you uh, while you're performing for them. And somebody may offer to dump a couple hundred bucks into your PayPal account in exchange for you doing X on cam right now. And you may feel, you know, you may wind up doing something for that little hit of money that you might not have wanted to do or feel good about doing after. And you have to think those things through in advance. Mm-hmm. There's a uh, there's a BBC three documentary that recently showed last month uh, called Webcam Boys that actually goes into this uh, entire industry, which I thought was absolutely fascinating about um, how there are people that get their families involved, how people are kind of doing this to boost their self-esteem, people doing it to pay bills. And I thought that it was very enlightening in terms of this actual canning industry, especially for men. You guys are really good at this. I have to say, after just two and a half months of doing it, you guys are naturals. You're good sex and relationship advice folks. People who aren't very should call into feral attraction, in my opinion. We appreciate the vote of confidence, Dan. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for jumping on the phone. Vero and Matrico, they're the co-hosts of the Furry Relationship Advice Podcast, Feral Attraction. Where can listeners who want to check out your advice podcast find it? Oh, sure. So we have both a podcast and an advice column. Both are weekly. Um, and you can find both of those at feralattraction.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at feralattractfm. Thank you guys so much. It was really a pleasure chatting with you. And please come back whether or not we have a furry question in the future. I want you to come back and just take a non-furry. What, would it, what do you call a non What's the fur term for people who are not furries? You got Oh, that's one. awesome. That's also super controversial, Dan. Uh, I tend to call them mundanes. That's the typical statement, mundanes, yeah. Not not baldies, not bearskins? (laughs) You'd think so, but no. Just mundanes. Mundanes. I'll own that. I'm mundane in some ways and not so mundane in others. I'm comfortable with that. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. It was really a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Hi, I have an answer for the at-home nudist. I think the thing he should tell his children is that in our culture, largely because of religion, there's a big confusion between nudity, which is being naked, and sex, which is a private thing that you have between yourself and someone you love. So sex is a very private, special thing, which you shouldn't share with other people, and it's an activity and it's actions, and it's with someone else, and nudity is when you're not wearing clothes. But because our culture uh, has confused the two, it, uh, nudity in general is considered sex, and sex is a private thing. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the guy whose mom is not coming around to him being gay. Um, one thing to keep in mind, if this was anybody else who was mistreating you verbally, would you put up with it? And the answer is no. So if you wouldn't allow it from a stranger who owes you nothing, why should you allow it from someone who is supposed to love you? Hi, this message is for the gay man who just had the falling out with his mother. I just wanted to thank you for sharing your story, as painful as it was to hear. Um, I'm a new mom. My son is only one, but 
I just want you to know from a mom to a son that that's not okay. This is something that should never happen. You're, you are perfect. You are doing this right. Your mom is the tremendous fuck up failure in this situation. And I'm sorry that I just insulted your mother on national radio, but I just, want you to know as a mom I just wish I could give you a hug right now and this is not your fault and she is the complete utter failure here you did not do anything wrong and I wish you and your husband the happiest life and we're going to leave it there 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast if you want to record a question or a comment or a future show give us a buzz 206-302-2064 follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage Follow Feral Attraction on Twitter at Feral Attract FM. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. <laughs>